There's a preacher of the old school, but he speaks as boldly as ever. He's not popular, though the world is his parish. And he travels to every part of the globe and speaks in every language. He visits the poor, calls upon the rich, preaches to people of every religion and no religion, and the subject of his sermon is always the same. He is an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings which no other preacher could, bringing tears to the eyes of those who never weep. His arguments, none are able to refute, nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him, yet everyone fears him. His name, death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday, every one of us will be his sermon. Amen? We're like, oh my, right? Death is not a fun topic to talk about, especially on Resurrection Sunday, right? Some of you are thinking, what, what, are, you, what are you thinking? You know, in our world today, we go out of our way to not even think about it. Writer William Somerset Maham once said, Death is a dull, dreary affair, and my advice to you is to have nothing whatsoever to do with it. Many would prefer that, to have nothing to do with death. But the problem is, there is no way to avoid it and no way to stop it when it comes. Death is relentless. Death is certain. The odds are one out of one. If the Lord delays His coming, we're going to die. There are no exceptions. It doesn't matter who you are, good or bad. Rich or poor, healthy or unhealthy, young or old, religious or godless. Death is impartial. It doesn't matter how significant, how wealthy, how intelligent one is, those people still die with the unknown and the poor and the foolish. And if you weren't uplifted enough yet, get this. We don't know when our dying day is going to be. All that we know is that it will be. Think of it in this way. It's like everyone who has ever lived has taken a number at the revenue office and the person behind the desk is just calling numbers out at random. Some have been called already. Numbers of people that you know. And though you know you have a number, and though you know that number is going to be called, you do not know when. Like it or not, that is the truth of the matter. In this reality, that we are all going to die someday, and that someday, maybe today, it upsets many. It has driven some to madness, because for some, this world is all there is. So you strip that away, and they're left with nothing. But here's the good news. You ready for some good news? 
Here's the good news for, for us believers. God tells us in his word that this life is not all there is and that death does not have the final say over us. That's what we've been talking about in this series. And for those of you all who've been in and out or for those of you all who are here with us for the first time, I apologize, you're you're coming in on the end of a series we've been doing for the month of March entitled Jesus' Resurrection and Ours. We've been going through the chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter. And in that chapter, we learn that for the Christian, all fear of death is canceled because of the future hope that we have believers in the physical and bodily resurrection that we will experience because we are trusting in Christ alone for salvation. What we have learned over the past few weeks is that though our bodies are going to one day go into the grave if Jesus delays his coming. God tells us in his word that we who are in Christ are going to one day in the future come out of the grave on the other side with glorified new bodies that are fit for glory. That's the truth for the Christian. That's the Christian hope. And that's the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there now. 1 Corinthians 15. This morning we're we're finishing up this great chapter on the resurrection. And for those of you who are here with us for the first time or for those of you all who have been in and out, let me give you a brief recap of what we've talked about so far in this series. 1 Corinthians is a letter from Paul to a messed up church. This church has all kinds of issues. It it seems like every chapter, Paul is addressing another problem that they're having. And 1 Corinthians 15 is no exception. We learn in 1 Corinthians 15 that on top of having behavioral issues and relational problems, the Christians at Corinth were also having doctrinal issues. Though the Christians at Corinth believed in the physical and bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead, and though they believed in some sort of future existence with him, they denied a future physical bodily resurrection of God's people on the last day. And the reason why is because they had been influenced by Greek philosophy that said the material world is bad, the body is bad, what is spiritual is good. So that was influencing them and and causing them to deny the future resurrection of the godly. So Paul, knowing this is where they are and knowing where they are doctrinally and how far off track they are, he takes chapter 15 to make a detailed and thorough argument in favor of the future physical resurrection of Christ and his people. And in the first half of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul builds his argument by first discussing the resurrection of Jesus. So for those of y'all that think it's strange, that's not our primary focus. Those texts this morning, we've already been there at the beginning of March, okay? Paul begins in verses 1 through 11 by giving the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. And then in verses 12 through 34, he explains the importance of it. And the reason why Paul starts here, though they believe that Jesus had been raised, 
The reason he starts here is because he wants the Christians at Corinth to know that there is a seamless connection between the resurrection of Christ and the future resurrection of believers on the last day. He explains to his readers what is true of Jesus is true of all of those who are in Christ, all of those who are trusting in him alone for salvation. Because Christ has been raised in the past, you who are trusting in him alone will be raised in the future. That's the point that he is making here. So he lays that out. In the first half of 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about Jesus' resurrection, gives evidence for it, explains the importance of it, and then he transitions in the latter half of the chapter to focus on our future resurrection as believers. And Paul does so by explaining what this future resurrection is going to be like for God's people. And the reason why he was doing that is because apparently there were some skeptical Corinthians who were saying, okay, Paul, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? They were thinking to themselves, man, Paul is smart in a lot of ways, but he's way off his rocker on this one. They were asking sort of jokingly with this sarcastic skepticism, all right, Paul, You want to talk about a future physical bodily resurrection of God's people? Tell us, how exactly can that happen? Because we've seen the body. We've seen it waste away. What use do we have in the future with a rotting and decaying body? So we talked about last week how Paul goes on to give them, because this is what they're asking, he gives them an incredible description of what it will be like in that day when God's people receive new bodies. He explained that the future you, believer, the future me, will be unique and remarkable. Though God has made us as human beings unique and extraordinary, Paul explains that one day he is going to raise up those who are in Christ to be a different kind, a better kind of remarkable. He says there is coming a day when we will burst forth from the grave in a physical bodily sense and we will exist in a similar yet unique and more glorious way. He also tells his reader that our bodies will be new and improved. And that's great news, isn't it? (laughs) But he explains that our, our, our bodies will be new and improved. He explains that we will be eternal, magnificent, and powerful. We will have new bodies, bodies that will be fit for glory, bodies that will be fit for worship. They'll be fit for eternity in the presence of our God and King. Well, In this last section that we're going to look at this morning, in verses 50 through 58, as Paul reflects on what Christ has done for us and what the future holds for the godly, as he anticipates that day when the dead in Christ will rise and will be given new bodies, he ends this chapter with a wonderful passage of praise. This passage should probably be sung as much as it is preached. John MacArthur once said this about this passage. He said, a celestial symphony ought to accompany this section of Scripture. Well, we don't have a celestial symphony with us here this morning, but we do have an awesome praise band. So with that in mind, I thought we would do something a bit unique this morning. 
as I preach through this wonderful, worshipful passage of Scripture, you are going to be involved in this message and this service in a special way. What I'm going to do is I'm going to preach this sermon in parts. And after each point, our praise band is going to come up and lead us in a song of response that we will sing in response to what we have just heard. So it's going to be a bit different this morning, but I really do believe that this passage calls for it. And I believe that it's going to be a meaningful and worshipful time for many of you. We're going to truly apply this sermon right here, right now, today. This morning during this sermon, we're going to be talking about the joy of our resurrection. We're going to be praising the Lord this morning for our future resurrection. This morning, as we look at this section in this great chapter, I want to call your attention to several different points of praise when it comes to our future resurrection as believers. First, we see here in this passage that we should, number one, praise the Lord for our future transformation. Praise the Lord for our future transformation. Like we we discussed last week, there is going to be a great transformation that is going to take place in the future. And it's something that must take place for us believers. Look at verse 50. Paul says this. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. And he makes the same point in verse 53 when he says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on Immortality. In other words, Paul is saying here that we as believers have to be transformed. We have to be a, a, a different person. We have to be made new. We have to be different in order to inherit the kingdom of God. We cannot be earthy like Adam, like we talked about last week, as Paul explained in the previous passage. We must be heavenly like Christ. In verse 49, Paul says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's Jesus. We have to be transformed. We have to become like Christ. We have to be given new bodies like his. We have to have a body, believers, that is fit for that existence, fit for glory. Paul says we cannot enter into God's kingdom with bodies like these that we have, bodies that are natural and perishable and dishonorable and weak. There is no way to dwell in the incorruptible, immortal kingdom of God in a mortal, corruptible state. We have to be given new bodies, bodies fit for that existence, bodies that are spiritual and imperishable and honorable and powerful and perfect. Now, this is exciting, isn't it, believers, when we begin to think about our future existence? But this point raises another important question. And the question is this, though many have and many will 
die before Jesus returns. And their bodies will go into the grave and their bodies will decay until the resurrection brings them out again, imperishable, powerful, and perfect. What about those who don't die before Jesus returns? Paul answered this a couple of times in the scriptures, which means he had been asked this question. What about those who are still here, who are still alive? When Christ returns, Paul says, that's easy, I'll tell you. Verse 51, he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, mystery here is a word that does not mean something you can't understand, but something that's been hidden that is now about to be revealed. Paul says, I'm going to tell you something that has been hidden from you. He says, we shall not all sleep. Now, what does Paul mean when he says sleep here? Well, he's referring to the physical death of a believer. Paul often referred to death for a believer as sleep because that's all it is. It's transitional where it's, it's moving from, from this existence to the next, from this life into the presence of the Lord. That's what death is for, for a believer. It's transitional. So he says, we shall not all sleep. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. He says, here's the mystery. Those who are still alive when Jesus returns will be changed. Now, how is this going to happen? Look at verse 52. Paul says, it's going to happen in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. Notice, it's going to happen in a moment. It's not going to be a long, drawn-out process. It's going to happen in a moment. Now, the word translated moment here refers to the smallest amount of time of which there is no smaller. Paul says, in the most finite unit of time, we shall be changed. He says, in the twinkling of an eye. Now, I read where one commentator said, it's the time it takes for the light to go from the iris to the retina. And if you're wondering how long that takes, ask Dr. Sands. He'll tell you. Okay? I can't tell you that, but, but, but what I know here is it's going to be quick. Right? It's going to be quick. Paul says, at the last trumpet. I love that. He says, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and we will all, believers, we who are in Christ, will be changed. Now, listen to this. This is very interesting. At times... In Scripture, trumpets are used to assemble people before God. In Exodus 19, we're introduced to this idea. In this chapter, the people of God are near Mount Sinai. And we're told in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. God's really letting them know he's up there, right? Now get this, it says... And a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. So the trumpet here is used to summon God's people to himself. And this is what that future trumpet is going to do as well. It's going to signal the end of the age. 
It's going to signal for us believers the end of our struggle with sin and death. And it is going to summon God's people to assemble before him. When that trumpet sounds, all those bodies that are in the grave are going to hear it. And they are going to come out in a glorified state and join those who are still here, who are in Christ, who have been transformed, and they're going to assemble before the Lord. Can you imagine what it's going to be like in that day when the graves start releasing their victims? And when those who are still here, who are in Christ, will be changed forever. So what we're going to do now is we're going to sing a song about all that Christ has done for us. I'm going to invite the praise team to come back up. And I want you to listen closely to the line in the song that says, You rose so you could raise me. That is Paul's line of praise in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as we sing this song this morning, my hope is, my prayer is, that your thoughts would go to that glorious day that we sung about earlier, when we as believers will be changed. My prayer is that as you sing this song, believers, you would reflect on that day when you're going to be given a new body, a body fit for worship, a body fit for glory, a body that is imperishable, incorruptible, and powerful, and perfect, just like the Lord Jesus. Would you stand with us to sing this song? Sacrifice, crushed by God for us. 
Amen. Well, we're not only going to praise the Lord for our future transformation, believers, but we're also going to praise Him for uh, this morning for our future victory. We have victory to look forward to, believers. Look at verse 54 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now, I want you to notice that this statement is in quotations. And the reason why is because Paul is quoting from the Old Testament here, from Isaiah. In the Hebrew, it is literally translated, death is swallowed up forever. I like that even better. Paul says, when... This transformation comes. Victory can be proclaimed. On that day, we can shout aloud our victory cry. Death is swallowed up forever. The word swallowed has to do with the idea of total destruction. Complete defeat. When Christ returns and the trumpet sounds and when we are transformed there will be a total end to death right now death is not swallowed up forever is it right now death is still very much an enemy now you may not fear death but there is a sense in which death still violates you it invades our world it ends long loving relationships it takes people we love way too soon and we as a church have experienced that this very year Death is still an enemy. It invades us and hits us with tremendous blows. But there is coming a time when death will be swallowed up forever. R.C.H. Linsky once said it like this. I love this. What looks like a victory for death and like a defeat for us when our bodies die and decay shall utterly be reversed so that death dies in absolute defeat and our bodies live again in absolute victory what a great word that's the hope that we have believers and in response to this incredible truth paul taunts death i love that by quoting hosea 13 14 which says oh death where is your victory Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, the word sting there has to do with the sting of a bee or like the sting of a, a serpent. Though death still violates us today, though it invades our world, the stinger of death has been removed for us believers. Do you realize that? And how has it been removed? It's been removed by Christ. You see, death plunged its stinger into him at the cross and it was left there. Christ bore the whole sting of death for us so that we who are in him would have no sting when it comes to death. That's what makes Good Friday good, by the way. Paul goes on to explain this a bit further. He knows he can't just leave it at that. He's got to give us a little theology to clarify things. He says... The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Here's what he's saying. Death ultimately 
does no harm to us believers, not ultimately. It violates our world. It separates us from loved ones, but we recover, right, from what it does because we will one day be raised, right, physically, bodily, to be with the saints together with the Lord. So it doesn't ultimately harm us unless sin is not taken care of. You see, the sting of death is sin. And that's not just any sin, but sin that's not been paid for. Sin that has not been atoned. Sin that's not been covered. Sin that has not been forgiven. For a believer, there is no sting in death because the penalty of sin has been removed. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us. And he took the full sting of death physically and spiritually. He, he endured God's wrath for us so that we who are trusting in him could be made righteous. We could receive his righteousness. So for us who are in Christ, all death can do to us ultimately is buzz around and annoy us a bit, but it can't ultimately sting us. Believers, Jesus took on all our sin. He took on your sin so that we through him could be forgiven. He died the death we deserve to die so that we through him, through that death, could have life. Now that doesn't mean you don't still mess up. You do, but it means your sins are covered. They're atoned for. They're forgiven. They are paid for. Paul also explains that the power of sin is the law. You see, what makes sinners sinners is that God is good. He's righteous. He is holy. And he has this standard of conduct that is on level with his righteousness. If God were not good, if he were not righteous, if he were not holy, if he had the attitude of do whatever you want, it doesn't matter to me, there would be no sin. But God has said, this is right, this is wrong, and it's his standard of righteousness. He has set up standards that we have fallen infinitely short of. We have failed to measure up, and that is sin. That makes us sinners. That makes sin a reality. And folks, if we were to end the story right there, that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, we would be in a bad, bad way because we've all fallen short of God's standard. We have sinned against him and we are unable to make up the difference. We're unable to atone for that sin. We're unable to cover that sin. Therefore, we are deserving of death and judgment of God's condemnation. Thankfully, Praise be to God. That's not the end of the story. God sent his son to fulfill the whole law for us, to fulfill all righteousness for us, to live for us, and to die in our place, to pay the price for sin that we deserve to pay so that death could be swallowed up forever for those of us who are in Christ at this time, we're going to sing a song in response to that wonderful truth. Our praise team is going to lead us in singing Victory in Jesus. What better song to sing than that? And as we sing this song together, I want you to reflect on what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57, where he says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand with us to sing?
So we have praised the Lord for our future transformation and for our future victory. Last point here, I praise the Lord for our purposeful present. There is purpose in the present, believers, in light of this truth that awaits us in eternity. This, this past week... And for uh, most of the sermon today, we have been primarily camping out in the future because that's where Paul has been, focused on the then and there. And now Paul brings us back to the here and now. Look at what he says in verse 58. 
He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, in light of these truths that he's been telling us, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul tells us two main things in particular here. He tells us to stand firm and to work hard. Stand firm, work hard. Hard. First, he says, because of these truths that I've been sharing with you about Christ's past resurrection and about your future resurrection, stand firm on this truth. Be steadfast and immovable. Steadfast is a word that means to be sitting. Paul says, take your seat on this truth. Be fixed, be seated firm and solid on the truth of your future resurrection. Don't have an Ephesians 4, 14 theology where we're told they were tossed back and forth and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Paul says, no, what I've told you, stand firm on that truth. Why? Because Paul knows that if we lose sight of that or if we begin to question our future as believers. We will not live the life that Christ has called for us to live in the present. We'll be living like the Corinthians. We'll be living like the world. Because if we question the eternal, we will lose that kingdom perspective and we'll fail to live the way God has called us to live in the here and now. Therefore, we must stand firm on this truth. We must not let our flesh, the world, and the enemy move us from this truth. Second, he says, work hard with this truth in mind, the truth of your future resurrection. To work hard here, the word work means to labor to the point of exhaustion. Paul says, believers, work until you're wearied. Listen, folks. There is no vacation in your spiritual life. Did you know that? You are always to be seeking to grow in your knowledge of God and grow in your knowledge of his word, to be growing in godliness. You're to be pursuing that at all times. Your goal in life is to live for God in his glory and to be used by God to escort people to him through his son by proclaiming his gospel message. Paul says we got to work hard. The work abounding means to overdo it. Listen, we cannot get caught up, believers, in the petty stuff of this world because we're told in the scripture that the world and all of its desires are passing away. Therefore, we are to give ourselves to God's kingdom work because that matters for eternity. That's why Paul says, if you labor in this way for God and for his kingdom, that labor is not in Vain. Don't believe me. Just reread 1 Corinthians 15 and look at what results from this great work that God has called us to, from this great message that we're called to proclaim, this great kingdom work that God has called us to. It brings results that will last forever. Am I right, believers? We've been talking about this. Because of what Christ has done, because he has been raised, those of us who are trusting in him alone for salvation will be raised to an imperishable, perfect state. 
with our Lord forever. There is eternity at stake, believers. Therefore, we are to be going above and beyond in our spiritual lives, purposefully overdoing it for the Lord. Don't ever let it be said of you that you settled for a subpar Christian life. Paul says, don't do it. Someone once asked a well-known pastor, do you think you'll ever retire? And he didn't pause a moment when he responded by saying, yeah, when I'm dead and laid out, I will. There are some who say, you know, I've given so much to the Lord, it's time for me to put my spiritual life in cruise. Paul says, no, we've got to get with it. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't rest physically, but even in our leisure time, we should be making the moments count for the Lord. And we are to be praising him at all times for these wonderful truths that gives us great purpose in the present. So many people don't have it. They don't. People who are here this morning, there are many who are wandering through this life aimless, not knowing that their time on earth will soon be over. I love the quote that John Piper always shares. This life will soon be past. Only that which is done for Christ will last. Truth. Truth. There was a missionary named David Brainerd who served as an American missionary to the Delaware Indians of New Jersey. How about that? It's a long time ago. He was considered by many to be one of America's most influential missionaries. His life, though great, though, was very, very short. He suffered from what is believed now to be tuberculosis for seven years, and he died at the age of 29. Yet, though he lived just under three decades, Brainerd's intense, passionate devotion to God affected countless Christians for generations to come. So much so that we're still talking about him here today. He once said this. He said, it's so sweet to be nothing and less than nothing that Christ may be all in all. And believe me when I tell you, he lived that. He lived as another great missionary, Jim Elliott, once said, not a long life, but a full one, just like Jesus. And the life that he lived for Christ and his kingdom now echoes through the halls of eternity. In just 29 short years, he made his years count for the Lord. May that be said of us, believers. May may God give us the desire to be nothing and less than nothing that Christ may be all in all through us. Let me end with this. Then we're going to sing one more song of praise and then we're going to have communion. Maybe you're here this morning and you're one of those that, that I described at the beginning of this sermon who don't even like to consider the sobering truth that you're going to die someday and that someday may be today. Listen, I wish I could give you words of comfort this morning. And tell you, don't worry about it. You're not going to die anytime soon. But listen, I can't make that guarantee to anybody, self-included. Truth is, none of us know. But what I can do is this. I can tell you how to be prepared when that day comes. I can give you a hope that lasts beyond the grave, which is better by far, right? I can explain to you 
How you can have the sting of death removed from your life. It can be removed if you would turn from your sin. Forsake that sin. Look to and cling to Christ alone for your salvation. We have to put our faith alone in Christ alone, in his person and work alone for our salvation to have this hope that we've been talking about. He came from heaven to earth. He lived the life we could never live. He fulfilled all righteousness. He died for us. He took the sting of death for us so that he could remove the sting of death from us. Jesus conquered death with death so that we, through faith in him, might have life. That's the gospel right there. For those of y'all discouraged this morning about the fact that you're going to die someday, and that someday may be today, I want you to consider the words of Jesus in John chapter 11. He said this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. What Jesus offers us here is better than a long life here on earth. He offers us eternal life with him. You want to be ready for your dying day? You need the work that Christ has accomplished applied to your life. And you can have that work applied to you this very day if you would give the reins of your life up and over to Jesus. Trust in him alone for your salvation and make him your Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time here this morning, for the great encouragement that we receive from you and your word, how it strengthens our hearts, how it gives us joy as your people and peace in the midst of this chaotic world in which we live. We're so thankful that all things are in your hands. We're thankful that there is a hope for the future for us, that there is a future resurrection that we who are in Christ will experience in the future. Oh, Lord, how it, how it has tremendous implications for us in the present. Lord, may each one of us here, your people, commit afresh this morning to invest in your kingdom work from this day forward. May we, may we give you our best. May it never be said of us that we gave you less. Father, for those here this morning who are without this hope because they're without Jesus, we pray that you do a great work right here and right now in their hearts and lives. Turn them to you. Convict them of sin. Lead them to salvation in your son so that they can leave here today with this hope. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing our last song, please.
Stone is wrong.